It's midnight in the woods. Darkness surrounds us. None of us are sure what exactly is out there. Luckily, you've made it here. You've made it to the campfire. Our two stories tonight take place right here in the Midwest. The second story is my story. And it's one that I hope will have you questioning what would make you believe? And our first story comes to us from Logan Dean, who shares with us his experiences in a mansion of a lumber baron in Bay City, Michigan. My grandparents' house in Bay City, Michigan is an old lumber baron manor built before the turn of the 20th century. Bay City is a bunch of these old mansions from when the lumber industry was booming. This one in particular sits on the corner of Raymond and Midland Streets. The apartment building next door used to be the coach house. My grandparents bought the building in the early 70s after the previous tenant passed away. When they moved in, they found the man's sparse belongings. He was a bit of a hermit and a member of the Golden Dawn, a prominent mid-century occultist movement popularized by its enigmatic leader, Aleister Crowley. Among his possessions were a number of occult books, which are in my collection today. He had lined every room with copper wire in order to focus his meditations. My grandparents aren't New Age types and just dismissed it as eccentricity. But in repairing the house, they found that the attic was once a third floor ballroom where the original owners would throw elaborate balls until it mysteriously caught fire, killing at least two people. Under the house, they found walled off rooms with electricity running to them, one of which contained a workbench with jars of pipe organ pads and tools. The rooms keep going further past the property line to establish a strange tunnel network below the houses that occupied the land that was once owned by this lumber baron. I never did find out the purpose of these tunnels. But the history of the house is not what I'm here to talk about. I grew up in this house, and in the years I spent there, I had a number of ghostly encounters. The most persistent being that whenever you descend from the second floor to the first, using either stairwell, there is the feeling of someone watching you. I still feel this to this day when I visit. The next is the library bathroom. The door to this bathroom will open randomly throughout the day, sometimes even when it's locked. The mirrors in the bathroom have been known to show something just out of eyesight moving behind you, and when you look to see, it's gone. Occasionally this will extend to the library itself, and the sound of a book falling can be heard throughout the house, but upon inspection, no books are out of place. These are the things that everyone in my family has experienced are often shrugged off. It was my personal experience that haunts me. I lived in the house from age 11 to 17, and some nights, rarely, a man would appear in my room. He was tall, wore a dark suit. He would slowly walk to the edge of my bed and sit there, staring. I wasn't afraid, just dumbstruck every time this happened. After a minute, he would stand up and slowly walk into the closet and disappear. I had written these encounters off as night terrors, 
and even sleep paralysis. Until recently, when my mother informed me that when she was a girl living in the same room, the man would visit her as well. Well, my mom and my brother still live there, and I go back when I can, but I don't think we'll ever really know what's going on in that old lumber baron house. share with you my true-to-life stereotypical haunting experience. You know, like the type you experience in the movies, except it's my real life. The first thing we do in any good spooky movie is you get to know the main character. And a good scary movie usually involves some kind of traumatic beginning or sorrow-filled main character. So what you can know about me is that I am a biology major and a comedian person, and for a while, I was working on cruise ships as a comedian, and then I got married, and then I got divorced, and then I came off of cruise ships. I needed a place to stay in Chicago right after that, and because any good haunting starts with moving into a new house, I moved in with a couple of my friends in a cute red house in Andersonville. My two friends owned the house, and they stayed in the top floor of the house. So my room was the only room on the main level. And it was very big with a huge walk-in closet, um, sick brag, and it was uh, right next to the kitchen so I could eat my feelings. It was perfect. And it wasn't long into moving in that I found a babysitting job, so I was set for a while. It took a bit to adjust to living with people again, and I had to remember to turn off all the lights like once I left or, you know, if I was leaving a room, especially because now there was a light in my huge walk-in closet. And yes, it felt very fancy, but I got into a really good routine of remembering to turn off the lights, turn off the light in my closet. And uh, because I also care about the environment, uh, I became a real stickler about the lights being off. So a few months into moving in, I had started to notice things in my day-to-day -day life that felt a little strange. I recognized I was seeing dead birds regularly. I would wake up, there'd be one outside on the sidewalk. I was on a walk with the kids once and I had to keep them away from examining a dead crow. Now, I, it was the fall at this time and I'm aware that bird strikes during migration are a thing. That's a thing that happens. So birds strike windows in the fall when they're migrating through. But it did seem a little odd to me that it was a bigger bird like a crow and that it was dead on the sidewalk. And I'm sure that happens too. You know, obviously it just felt strange to me in that week of seeing lots of dead birds to see a crow dead in the sidewalk. Sometimes the birds would not be near a building. It would just be dead birds kind of in the middle of the road or in a lawn. I, I was just seeing a lot of dead birds. 
There was one morning where I was walking to work when I noticed a rat that was walking in front of me and it was kind of wavering side to side and it looked funny, it looked a little drunk or something and it ducked under into a bush to my left and I took out my phone like any good modern person with a phone and I started recording and as I ducked down underneath the bush to record the rat, it looked over at the camera and fell down and died on camera. And that's real. I <laughs> took that video and I put it up on Instagram. My handle is Squid Pickle if you want to go check out that video. It's just little stuff started to feel really weird. And then a spider had made a web all the way across the front door of the house I was staying in. And that's a door that was used every day. So it felt really odd to me because spiders generally kind of make their webs up in corners or if you're in the woods, you know, you'll get a face full of spider web, but that's because you're in the spider's house at that point. But in my experience, I haven't experienced a lot of spiders that make their webs all the way across the front door. So this happened on the first day and I, you know, I don't kill spiders, so I swiped the web off across to the side. And then when I came, when I was about to leave the house the next day, it had happened again. The spider had remade its web all the way across the front door of the house. And that happened every morning for a week or a week and a half. It was a week and a half, almost two weeks maybe of this, that I just started to perk up a little bit and notice what was happening around me. And that's when I started noticing what was happening with the lights in my room. I'm going to describe the room to you and then I'll tell you what was going on. So when you walked into this totally white plain room, on the right side was my bed with the headboard against the right wall. If you let your gaze drift from right to left past the foot of my bed, lots of space, a window on the wall in front of you, and then the door to the walk-in closet was on the left wall. I started to have these nightmares almost every night even when I was taking naps during the middle of the day. Uh, and the nightmare would start with me walking along a path in the darkness. I could see in the distance, there was some kind of thing I was trying to go to in the distance, but I couldn't quite tell what it was. I just knew that I wanted to get there. And then on the sides of the path were these shadow type figures trying to pull me off the path. And the figures were sometimes in the shape of the kids I was babysitting. And sometimes they were just shadow people. They would tug at my arms, try and pull me off the path. And the moment I got pulled off the path, I would wake up. Upon waking, the light in my closet would be on. The first few times this happened, I chalked it up to coincidence. Uh, you know, I must have left the light on. The kitchen light is maybe linked with the light in my closet. So someone turned on the lights and the light in my closet turned on. But I'm a scientist through and through and it was happening so much that I started documenting it. So I had a log and a notebook where I would write down the date and the time and when I turned off the light, and then any time that I would come back in and it would be on again. I would write down a list of possible answers or different possibilities for why it was happening. I started taking photos whenever I woke up or came into the room and the light was unexpectedly on. And I did test after test with my roommates to discover which switches and fuses and fixtures were connected in the house. And there was no explanation. I have photo after photo 
of coming home to a completely dark house, but the light is on in my closet, of waking up in the middle of the night to the light on in my closet, waking up from a nap in the middle of the day with the light on in my closet, walking back into the room and the light is on in my closet with seemingly no logical explanation. I started the next phase of my stereotypical haunting experience, which is, of course, the research phase. I looked into the history of Andersonville and the history of the land before Andersonville was Andersonville. So I'll share from the earliest to the most recent what I found. The lands of Chicago were a huge trading hotspot since before European settlement and had at least three major settlements of native tribes on the land that is now Chicago. In 2013, in fact, during landscaping for natural area at Rose Hill Cemetery, which is not far away, it's the oldest and largest cemetery in Chicago. So in 2013, as they were doing excavation, they found artifacts from one of the native tribe settlements and they had to stop construction and call archaeologists. From my own research and digging into the internet, I found Chicago to be the ancestral lands of the Council of Three Fires, which included Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations. Other tribes on the land included the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Sac, Fox, Kickapoo, and Illinois. I started to dig into the cultures of the tribes and I found a couple things that were interesting with how the Illinois tribes and the Miami tribes dealt with death. In the Illinois, what I found is that they would do mound burial and never bury their dead alone. I feel like mound burial is the one we hear a lot about in spooky movies. But what I found interesting about this is there's kind of a sweet reason that I found that was behind it, which is that they never wanted to bury their dead or loved ones alone. They didn't want them to have to make the journey to the afterlife by themselves. So if someone would die in your family, you would wait until someone else local passed away so that you could bury them together. In another tribe in the Miami, they would hang their dead up in a tree or build scaffolding and hang the dead up into the scaffolding. And it looked very gruesome, but they did this because they believed there was a beautiful afterlife at the end of a long pathway. And that long pathway, you would have to walk that once you died. On either side of the path, there are limbo type negative spirits that would try to pull you off the path. And if they succeed, your soul would be stuck on earth in limbo for all of time. They would hang their dead so the dead could more clearly see the path to get to the afterlife. I also looked into the neighborhood of Andersonville, which was founded by Swedish folks at the turn of the century, and they built this big, beautiful church as kind of a community center called Ebenezer Lutheran Church. And the home that I was living in was directly across from Ebenezer Lutheran. So the church had had a congregation for a couple of decades before they got to build their big church. And the church as it stands now was completed in 1908. I found a fireman's map from the 1890s and it shows all the residential plots in the neighborhood. And all the plots were accounted for except for the house I was staying in. I thought this was a little odd. The house that I was living in wasn't built until 1928, something I found out, and it's represented on a later city plot map. And when I asked an Andersonville Historical Society member what this meant, she suggested it could mean the church may have owned that plot just across the street, and that it could have even served as a morgue 
or something like that because churches didn't like to deal with the dead on the grounds of the church, but having a morgue nearby was useful for the community. So when I asked my own sort of Norsk side of my family about this, they mentioned that one way that the Swedish people used to make sure that their family's spirit had moved on was that they would keep a candle in the room overnight with a recently deceased person. And if the candle had blown out, they knew their soul had ascended to heaven. But if the candle was still burning, the soul remained on earth somehow. This felt significant because if in fact the house that I was living in was a morgue for the church across the street, and if in fact they held that belief with the candles, keeping candles around for the dead, then it felt somehow possible that maybe there was a spirit that never went to the other side. I never got any dangerous vibes from the presence that was in my room, uh, in that house. And, you know, a little while later, a few months of that really, I ended up moving not far from that location into a high rise toward Lake Michigan. And I thought that everything was going to go away, moving into a different place. But sure enough, a couple of months of no activity and I came home late one night after a comedy show and not only were the lights to the closets in my bedroom on, but there was also the lights on in the closets in the main living space. So all of the closet lights were on in that space. It started to make me a little spooked and I was talking, uh, I was telling this story at a live show and a close friend of mine, Mike, heard the story and he, a few months later, was doing some hunting in Reno and he found himself crouched in a sage bush. So he picked some of the sage, having some knowledge of some of the historical uses of sage, including clearing bad spirits. And he dried the sage for me and even bundled it up. And I burned the sage in my house and the entity or whatever it was that was following me went away. I haven't experienced anything since. And again, I still don't really know if I believe in ghosts. Uh, I like to believe, I think it's fun, but I still don't have an explanation for that time in my life. And honestly, if I die anytime soon, I would hope that you would hang my body up high so that I can see my way to the other side of that path because I don't want to get pulled off the path by the shadows of the kids that I babysit. <laughs>
The stories for this show are curated by Brad Pike, with editing and hosting by Lisa Burton, and original music by Ben Kinsinger. If you liked this podcast, check out Experience the World, a podcast intricately describing worldly experiences from a first-person perspective from the demented mind of Brad Pike. Devil's Daughter is now offering online improv workshops and classes through partnerships with local BIPOC improv teams and donations to social justice organizations. Your class tuition helps grow our community. Check out Devil's Daughter Instagram and Facebook for more information. Devil's daughter. Devil's daughter. Devil's daughter. Devil's daughter. Hey, Devil's daughter. I remember them.